Ken, you ever play baseball? I have played baseball. A little softball? Yeah, I played that well, too. I'm, you know, I'm, I'll just bring in baseball because baseball is an analogy for everything. How did you learn about baseball? Ken, did you read it in a book? Is that how you learned how to play <laughs> baseball? No, but that's how I learned how to ride a bike. Well, there you have you learned how to ride. I'm just kidding. No one learns how to play baseball reading The, the, the example book. sticks, right? <laughs> Well, hello, and welcome to another unprecedented episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley, and uh, we have been going through all kinds of topics in this little show we call On the Journey, and we've been going most recently through the topic of authority from a Catholic perspective. Of course, Ken's a former Baptist pastor. I was a former evangelical of mm -hmm. various Wesleyan stripes, and so that's where we're coming from. If you like what you're seeing, if you're curious, if you have questions, please do check us out at chnetwork.org. This is a production of the Coming Home Network, and definitely, if you're able to, visit us in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. So, Ken, uh, Hello, catch sir. us up. Where, where do we leave sir. off with uh, tradition and authority and magisterium well, actually, and all that fun stuff? Yeah, actually, we just began this series. We did a lengthy series some months back on Sola Scriptura, where we were basically critiquing the Protestant, um, well, the foundation of Protestantism as a worldview. What we didn't do at that time was turn around and address the other side of the question, basically and explain, so what is the Catholic view of authority and, and how do you make the case for it? So that's what we're going to do in this series, which we began last week. Um, last week, basically what we did was we introduced the issue of authority and we spent some time describing the foundational difference between the Protestant and Catholic positions on authority, which is really the primary issue that separates Protestantism and Catholicism, is this issue of authority. Binding authority within the Protestant worldview is based on the principle of sola scriptura. Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Every Christian is his own pope and counsel to decide for himself what it's teaching. Within the Catholic worldview, it's the infamous three-legged stool comprised of scripture, tradition, and magisterium, working in some mysterious way, together to provide binding authority. Okay, so because of that, Protestantism tends to be a religion of the book, Bible only, based on Scripture. Catholicism tends to be a religion of the Word, and that is God's Word as it is believed to have been preserved and transmitted within the Church through Scripture, Tradition, and magisterium. And that's what this series is going to be about, is working through scripture, tradition, and the magisterium and presenting the Catholic view and making the case for it. So how do you feel about getting to the, uh, I feel like, I feel like getting down to business. This is important to discuss. One little, you know, preface comment I will make going sure. into this is that, uh, like many things that I believe now as a Catholic, I subconsciously believed them in some form as a Protestant. So while I believe that mm -hmm. the Bible was the sole rule of faith, uh, I was, without realizing it, reading my own tradition into that and trusting the teachers mm -hmm. that I had sort of self-selected to help me reinforce what That's it was right. that I thought I was getting from the scriptures. So scripture, tradition, and magisterium functioned on some level for me already, 
But when I saw the way they were spelled out uh, from the Catholic perspective, I was like, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense than me just kind of. Yeah, if it's it. true, if it's true, if, if it's the true, case, if the case can be made for it, it's beautiful and it makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. OK, so let's dig in and let's begin with Scripture. You know, I'm not sure as I look back when I was a Baptist, when I was a Protestant for 20 years, I'm not sure that I really knew exactly what the Catholic Church thought or believed about the Bible. You know, there was so much floating around of, you know, the Catholic Church hates the Bible. They don't want anybody to read it, things like that. So that when I finally got around to reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church and other church documents and whatnot, I personally, I don't know about you, but I, I was really blown away at the beauty of the church's view of the Bible. Yeah, I, I remember when I read Dave Erbin for the first time, I, I thought, what Protestant snuck into the Second Vatican Council yeah, and, wrote, and this. wrote this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen to a couple of quotations. Uh, again, relying kind of heavily on the Catechism in this series. Take paragraph 81 of the Catechism. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it was put down under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't imagine any evangelical Protestant coming up with a more beautiful, succinct description. Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it was put down under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Um, here's a couple more. Paragraph 104. In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. In the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to meet his children and talks with them. Then one more. Paragraph 105. God is the author of sacred scripture. The divinely revealed realities which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, there is something we'll be coming back to later on, accepts as sacred and canonical the books of the Old and New Testaments, whole and entire, with all their parts, on the grounds that written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit they have God as their author and have been ha handed on as such to the church herself. You know, you delete the word church from that paragraph and R.C. Sproul could have, you know, written this or or somebody else. You know, there, this is such a strong, high view of Scripture I, that the church has. I think has. you mean R.C. Sproul, Sproul but again, you weren't Sproul. from the Reformed camp. You were yeah, Methodist, I, so. I only read his name on a shelf. Yeah. I didn't actually listen to his tapes. Sorry about yeah. that. And everybody messes up from time to time. The late R.C. I remember sitting in a pew when I was a young uh, Catholic and hearing someone get up to read the Old Testament and say, uh, a reading from the book of Job. Yeah, so, I heard uh, Pilates a couple weeks ago from uh, someone oh, who really? meant to say Pilots. So yeah, <laughs> Pilates. it happens. It happens. Well, Sorry, you know, what, though, you know what, though? Many evangelicals to this day, though, imagine that the church doesn't like the Bible. And yet, ju just hear these words. I can't think of an evangelical Protestant whose heart wouldn't you know, jump up and down with joy at these descriptions of God's Word. Now, I'm going to cut this short. We could go deeper, obviously, into the exact nature of inspiration and of the infallibility of Scripture, of the various genres that are contained in this library of books that we call the Bible. We could go into various modes of interpretation, exegesis, etc., etc. But for our purposes in this series, which is about authority, what is important here is that we understand and get clear that both Catholics and Protestants hold 
the scriptures to be divinely inspired, God's revelation, God's authoritative inspired word. After all, the dispute that exists between us is not a dispute over the inspiration and authority of the Bible. It's a dispute over sola scriptura. It's a dispute over the Bible only versus scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And so we're actually going to leave scripture there and we're going to move on to tradition now where we're going to be spending a few weeks before we get to magisterium. Are you good with that? I'm good with that. You know, tradition, it's what, 20 centuries at this point. So that's not counting the the Judaism, you know, from which it springs. So Mm -hmm. I feel like a few weeks is barely justice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, good. Okay. I have, um, you know, I want us to dig into this slowly and I want us to do it right and I, I want to explain this really confusing and ambiguous concept of tradition to Protestants and evangelicals of all stripes that may be listening to us, maybe watching this show. Um, I want to attempt to bring real clarity. And so we're going to move slowly and not just throw out, you know, some uh, platitudinous lines or whatever. All right. So we're going to go slowly. And the two questions that I want to address today, or I have two questions that I want to address today. The first is this. What do we Catholics mean when we speak of tradition? That's where we're going to start. What do we mean? Definitions. What do we mean when we speak of tradition? I remember, Matt, sitting at my kitchen table many, many years ago with an old uh, Protestant friend, a committed evangelical. We were discussing these exact issues, and we were discussing tradition. I quoted 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to him as being a foundational text for understanding the Catholic conception of tradition. That's where Paul said, and I quote, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. All right, just so before you get into his response, sure. this verse, we talk about, you know, we these verses that weren't in our Bible before. This verse really right. wasn't in my Bible because I had the New International Version, and that word tradition was translated to teaching. teaching. Yeah. Yeah, so the translators, you know, uh, kind of clouded the issue here. No, yeah. but the word is paradosis in the Greek. It's tra- it's it's tradition. So then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions you have been taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Well, in frustration, my, my friend responded. I remember very strongly, he said, Hensley, he said, of course I believe that the oral teaching of the apostles was authoritative. Of course I believe that. But where is that tradition now? Where, is it written down somewhere? Can you show it to me? He held up his Bible at that point, and I remember he said, look, I can see this. I can hold it in my hands. I can read it. Where in the world is this ambiguous tradition that you Catholics keep talking about it? Show it to me. So just take that question and kind of let it float in your head. Um, Listening to a radio debate between a Catholic and a Protestant many years back again, I heard the same question raised in a different form. Um, The Catholic in this debate was explaining that we can hear the apostles speaking, that is, we can hear the apostles teaching in Scripture, the Catholic was saying, but we can also hear them speaking, and he said, in sacred tradition, quote-unquote, to which the Protestant, you know, uh, not comprehending what was going on, responded, no, this is the Protestant, said no, If we had been there in the first century, we could have heard the apostles speaking, and we could have known what they were teaching. 
Um, if the apostles were here with us now, if they could get into a time machine and come here and they could speak, then yes, we would hear them speaking. But unless you're saying somehow that the Catholic Church has recordings of the apostles' sermons or has transcriptions of things that the apostles said that are not recorded in the Bible, unless you're saying something like that, well, the only way the only way that we can hear the apostles speaking now is in what they wrote in their you know, writings. This goes, this goes back to uh, something we were talking about in the Sola Scriptura series about how if, you know, it brings up the question, well, if it's so important that the writings of the apostles and the, the, the recordings of their sermons, the written recordings of their sermons, are the most important thing, why aren't the early Christians writing everything down? Why do I have this account in the book of Acts, right, where... Paul preaches deep into the night, and this kid yeah. Eutychus is sitting up on a ledge and falls down and dies, and Paul raises him up from the dead. We had hours and hours of stuff of Paul preaching, and all we've got is that he raised this kid. <laughs> you know, we don't have any of those. From that night, yeah. From that, from that night, night yeah. you know, this is just, it, yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating thing. Um, well, that is one of the that important we don't have those. That's one of the important uh, questions that has to be raised and, and that we will be talking about along the way. But but good point. Yeah, I, I wonder what did Paul say preaching all night long? Okay, but the point is, these are good questions that my Protestant friend was ra raising. You know, Hensley, where's this tradition? Can you show it to me? Is it written down somewhere? And that the Protestant in this debate on the radio was asking or, you know, pointing to when he said, no, you know, if we were there, we could have heard them. If the apostles were here now, we could hear them. But apart from that, unless you Catholics are claiming to have recordings somehow, then the only way we can hear what they taught is in what they wrote. Okay, so what do we Catholics mean when we speak of tradition then? Are we saying that we have, uh, you know, secret recordings of sermons, you know, that were presented by Matthew the Apostle or Barnabas or whatever back then that are ditched away and hidden in these those mysterious Vatican archives? Are we claiming to have transcriptions, you know, that we hide away and we just don't show the world? Is that what Catholics are claiming? What are we saying when we talk about tradition? And I want to begin by reading again a little bit. Okay, here's paragraph 75 and 76 from the Catechism to get us rolling. Christ the Lord in whom the entire revelation of the Most High God is summed up, again, beautifully said, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel, which, they, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In keeping with the Lord's command, then, the gospel was handed on by the apostles in two ways, in writing by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. Okay, so in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways, in writing, and then the Catechism says, orally, by the apostles who handed on, now catch this, by the spoken word of their preaching, by their example, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So here's where we need to focus for a little bit of time. When we Catholics speak of tradition, what we are talking about, what we're talking about are the ways in which the apostles' doctrine was handed on in ways apart from their writing, the ways in which the apostles handed on their teaching apart from writing. 
And, and in this passage of the Catechism, they're actually listed for us th- th- those ways. One, by the spoken word of their preaching. Two, by the example that they gave. And then three, by the institutions they established. And let me give an illustration. Let's take baptism as an illustration because it's good and it's practical. When Peter or Paul, when James or John, Bartholomew, Apollos, anybody, when they came to a town, they would have evangelized the town, they would have won converts, and they would have baptized them. At that time, they would have explained, like Paul preaching that night, all night long, Eutychus falling out the window, they would have explained the meaning of baptism. Okay, here we have their teaching and preaching. They would have actually performed all kinds of baptisms. Here we have their example that's mentioned in the catechism passage. And they would have ordained leadership in the churches to follow their teaching and their example in the future. Here we have the institutions that they established. So the point is this, Matt, those churches, I mean, imagine any one of those, the church in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, and Colossae, those churches would have known everything they needed to know about baptism what it means, what it accomplishes, who is to be baptized, how you do it, when you do it. They would have known all of this long before they ever read a letter written to them by any apostle explaining any of these things. In fact, as it turns out, you can read all the epistles in the New Testament, and there is no New Testament letter that goes into depth explaining the meaning of baptism, when it's to be done, to who it's to be done, and all that. There are no, I mean, there are instances of baptism, there are allusions to it, there are things said about it, but there's nothing like that. But these churches, but these churches to whom the apostles taught, they would have known fully. Go ahead. Yeah, I I was just going to say, this is so evident and once you start to look at the the breadth of what we do have in the new testament because uh it is strange that if paul's writing to all these different churches it's only to the corinthians that he says for i received from the lord what i handed on to you and then goes in to talk about the last supper which jesus commanded you know to be done in remembrance of him you know by all his apostles in all the ways that information is not in his letter to the ephesians right? No. How did the Ephesians learn that information? They learned it from living with Paul for years, right? That's how they would have learned that information. Well, I was going to say that the the same thing I just said about baptism could be applied to the Eucharist. The apostles who went and taught, you know, these, you know, Paul going to the church in Ephesus, I'm going to Ephesus and teaching for three years and communicating to them, the, the book of Acts says, the whole counsel of God he would have celebrated the Eucharist with them. He would have taught them everything. They would have known everything they needed to know about, about the Eucharist years and years before they received his his six-page letter. The Corinthians prison. would have received it from St. Paul um, in another way, because by the time right. we get to the first and second letters, it's not Paul telling mm-hmm. them how to celebrate it. It's telling it's Paul telling them how not to celebrate it, right? Right, right. Uh, okay, he's so, correcting them. Uh, so what we're talking about them. here— what we're talking about here is simply what the Catholic Church means when it speaks of tradition. And I just want to make very clear, the Church is not claiming to have in her possession transcriptions of sermons, recordings of hidden sermons, or anything like that. Nothing like that. What the Church is claiming is this, that the substance of the apostolic doctrine, the substance of the apostolic faith, was transmitted and preserved in the Church apart from their writings, through the apostles' preaching and teaching, through their example, 
and through the institutions that they established. And I want to spend a few minutes now just commenting on how basically reasonable this is if you think about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's reasonable. It's, it's kind of common sense to think that what the apostles taught in all the time that they spent in these various churches would be reflected would be reflected in the faith and practice of those churches, of the churches they founded. And as you know, St. John Henry Newman talked about this in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Now, listen to what he said. I'm going to read just a part of this. The most natural hypothesis is to consider that the society of Christians which the apostles left on earth were of that religion to which the apostles converted them. Okay, I mean, the most natural hypothesis is, is simply to say that the society of Christians they left on earth was of that faith, of that religion to which the apostles converted them. That as Christianity began by manifesting itself as of a certain shape and bearing to all mankind, therefore, that it went on to manifest itself, to so manifest itself. It makes sense, Matt, to think that the faith and practice of the early church would be a good indicator of what the apostles had taught them by their preaching, their example, by the institutions that they established. This makes sense. And it was clearly the view of the early church fathers, which is an important point to make. It not only makes sense, it clearly made sense to the early church fathers because they state it in a million different ways. Now, I've, I've referred to this particular quotation by St. Irenaeus a million times but it's because it's so powerful. And so I won't read it, but I just paraphrase it once again. In his book, Against Heresies, St. Irenaeus describes the apostles as having deposited their doctrine, deposited their teaching in the church, just like a rich man deposits his money in a bank. And because of this, Irenaeus says, Christians can come to the church to draw from her, that is to draw from the church, everything pertaining to the truth. Here's something else that St. Irenaeus said. As I said before, the church, having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the world, the church, yet guarded it, that is, this doctrine, this preaching that, that she received from the apostles, yet guarded it as if she occupied but one house. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. So the idea makes sense. It makes sense that what the apostles taught by their preaching and teaching, by their example, by the institutions they established, that it would be preserved in the church. And the early church fathers view it that way. I mean, to the point to where Irenaeus is able to say, you want to know the truth? Come to the church. The apostles deposited the truth in the church, and you can go to the church and get it. And, and, and then he says, you know, even though the church is spread throughout the entire world, it guards the, the truth that was taught to them by the apostles. It guards it as, as if it, the church had one heart, speaks as though it had one mouth. I mean, these are beautiful statements, and they make sense, okay? And that it, is the surprising it, thing to find when you go in and look at the record of what we do have, is how people from North Africa are on the same page as people from Jerusalem, who are on the same page as people in Cappadocia and, you know, modern Greece. What's, yeah, what's and shocking every, is, 
that they're yeah, all ahead. on the same page on these major themes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to interject there, not on every detail. There are obviously discrepancies and there's obviously debates that take place, but the substance of the faith is there. And you can see it in Syria, Antioch of Syria. You can see it in Turkey's Constantinople. You can see it in North Africa, Hippo and Carthage. You can see it in Rome. You can see it in Jerusalem. It's present there. Okay, so the idea that the substance of the apostles' teaching would be preserved and, and, and would be evidenced by the faith and practice of the church makes sense. It made sense to the early church fathers. And then as we saw when we were looking at Sola Scriptura some months back, it appears to have made sense to the apostles themselves, to the apostles. Because I, I ask you, Matt, how else can we explain what Paul says to Timothy when preparing to leave this world? First, first what he doesn't say. You know, the fact that he doesn't say to Timothy, Timothy, collect all my writings, make dozens and dozens of copies, because, I, because once I'm dead, this is the only way anyone's going to know what I taught. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, Paul says to Timothy, and I, I need to emphasize this again, because it's so critical. Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Okay, you know, Paul doesn't say, Timothy, remember the letter I wrote to, you know, to the Philippians? Remember this? Remember that? Collect these together. Why is he thinking about this pattern of sound words instead, which Timothy has heard from him, not read from his letters? Follow the pattern of sound words, Timothy, which you have heard from me. Guard this truth that has been entrusted to you Guard it by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Well, if you had letters from Paul, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit to guard them. You just need to make really accurate copies. But, you know, this pattern of sound words, it's what you have heard from me. It's what I want you to guard by the Holy Spirit that has been entrusted, I mean, that has been given to you. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. There's no doubt in my mind, Paul seems to have believed that the substance of his doctrine would be preserved in the church and could be known, not merely, maybe even not mainly through his writing, but by the Holy Spirit through something that sounds a whole lot like the beginnings of apostolic succession when he says, give this to other faithful men who will be able to teach others. Can you ever play baseball? I have played baseball. A little softball? Yeah, I played that little, too. I'm, you know, I'm, I'll just bring in baseball because baseball is an analogy for everything. How did you learn about baseball? Can you read it in a book? Is that how you learn how to play baseball? <laughs> no, but that's how I learned how to ride a bike. Well, there you have you no, learned how to ride I'm just kidding. No one learns how to play baseball reading they, it The example sticks, right? Yeah. And there's a sense of the people who are maybe not even that much older than you who teach you how to play baseball that they... Yeah received what was handed on to them and there's certain things that are precise that you can't do you just can't do certain things you know that guy's off the bag he can't be off the bag right now you know there's 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 a way that things have have been transmitted through even in our own day that goes beyond merely the written i mean yeah there's i mean of course the example breaks down because you can find the rule book on baseball yeah, yeah. if you want to but that's not how most people learn how to play baseball and Paul seems to have that kind of a basic common sense um, uh, mind frame as he speaks to Timothy uh, near what appears to be the end of his sojourn in this world. And it's the same with John, as we mentioned before. How else can you and I explain 
what John says twice in his three short letters. He writes these three minuscule letters to talk about the Gnostics and to warn the, his, his spiritual children of the false teaching of the Gnostics. And in these letters, twice he says, look, I have a lot more that I want to teach you, but I don't want to write it down. I don't want to use pen. I don't want to use paper. I want to wait until I see you. Again, John must have believed, it just follows kind of rationally, he must have believed that the substance of his teaching was going to be preserved in the church in ways other than writing. And okay, I, think so, that, I think that brings up a, a good point, too, uh, that I want to make sure is not lost here. Uh, because in all this, we've been talking about the people who are transmitting their tradition and what their intent is and how they're going about it. Uh, we haven't talked as much about the mindset of the people who are receiving this tradition in the pews, as it were. This is, of course, of a, a pre-pew era, right? Um, and these are people who, well, I mean, my gosh, when I got my first job at the Nicholasville McDonald's at age 15, Ken, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. I had to know how to read and write to go flip burgers, right? Uh, and that's just how it is. Everybody's got to be literate to make it in this world. Literacy is not a thing. Oral tradition is a thing, and we don't understand how strong oral tradition is because oral tradition has been supplanted by the written word and beyond that with every other form of media Mm -hmm. that there is. If you and I, after this, say, hey, what time do you want to record next week? And you say, oh, let's do 2 p.m. on on Wednesday. I'll say, you know what I'll say to you? I'll say, that sounds great. Send it to me in an email. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas if, I mean, think about, Back if, then, if, you're talking about back then. Back then, that the, the literacy and writing not a thing for. But back people. then, the 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 people of Israel knew one story mm-hmm. and they knew it extremely well in and out. People who couldn't read knew the story, mm-hmm. and they knew it through the psalms that they heard at the temple. Mm-hmm. They knew it through a hundred different ways. It was an oral tradition that was so strong because they didn't have mm-hmm. these other replacement technologies that had sort of weakened that muscle for them to understand in our age we just assume that well if it was oral tradition then maybe it's not accurate when in fact that's the that's the primary way most people learned about anything so. yeah, and especially when again we're not saying that the tradition was comprised of a bunch of uh, you know exact statements and paragraphs and sermons it was the substance of the doctrine which could be passed on easily as the apostles were teaching the churches, and they knew it. They simply knew what the doctrine was. So, okay, so we know what Catholics mean by tradition, and we know what tradition is. Again, it's the substance of the apostolic teaching as it was passed down and preserved within the church in ways apart from writing, by their teaching and preaching, by their example, by the institutions they established. And We already have been given a hint, a strong hint, as to where this tradition, therefore, would be found. We want to know what it is. We want to know, secondly, where it's to be found. And the answer is in the church, in the church's doctrine, in the church's life, in the church's worship. Listen to paragraph 78 of the Catechism. This living transmission accomplished by the Holy Spirit is called tradition. See, it's a living transmission accomplished by the Holy Spirit, is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church, in her doctrine, life, and worship, perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is 
and all that she believes. Now, this may be a little nuanced, and so I, I hope it can be caught, but I want you to notice how the what of tradition and the where it's to be found, notice how they're connected. Notice that we talked about the apostles preaching. Well, the apostles preaching now has become the church's doctrine. Um, we talked about the apostles' example, which has now become the church's way of life. <laughs> the apostles' example becomes the church's way of life. The institutions of the apostles now become the church's worship and the church's structure, its, its way of being. So this is where tradition is to be found, in the church, in the church's doctrine, in the church's way of life, in the church's worship. Yeah, in the church's liturgy. And I think this is one of the reasons this was so hard for me to understand, uh, you know, how how this tradition could have been so steady and so strong and so well-preserved, because Mm -hmm. I didn't come from a tradition that placed a high value on liturgy. We didn't even use the word liturgy. We had Sunday morning, we had the early service and the late service. We had the contemporary service and the traditional service. Each one was either a bunch of hymns and a sermon and probably an altar call, or a bunch of praise songs and a sermon and an altar call. Mm-hmm. We didn't have like a liturgy, um, and we can trace the liturgy back. I mean, the liturgy is there. It's not exact, but yeah, the pieces, yeah. the structure is there. And we didn't have anything like that, so it was hard for me to understand what is meant by the liturgy itself. Itself is a form of that tradition and a and a preservation that you can find all over the Mediterranean basin as far back as you can yeah. find liturgy. A form of prayers, a form of actions, a form of worship. And by the way, in my Baptist tradition, we didn't use the word liturgy either. When I first heard it, I was like, what's this weird word? You know, it, it wasn't a word that we used. But but what the Catechism says here is that this is how the church, and I'm quoting again, perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she is, all that she believes and this makes sense. You use the baseball analogy. I brought in the uh, the bicycle analogy in a clumsy way. This fits because the church is a family, and and isn't it exactly is isn't this exactly how teachings and uh, and ways of life are passed down within a family? And I asked the question. You know, I've asked this before, but how did I learn what to do every Christmas each year? How did how did I learn it? Is it because my parents? you know, wrote some detailed manual and left it around for me to read later on? No. I learned it by watching. I learned it by hearing. I learned it by seeing. Um, how do my kids know what to do when it's Christmas time? How do they know that it's time to get a tree? It's time to begin stringing lights. You're going to hang this. You're going to do that. You're going to sing these songs. You're going to read these passages. How do they know? And how do my grandkids know? They learned it exactly as I learned it. And, and, and here's the thing. If Tina and I were to die this year, I guarantee you that this coming Christmas, no one in my family, no one among my children or grandchildren are going to be sitting around moaning and complaining and saying, dang, I wish that mom and dad had written this stuff down so we would know what to do. And when they start preparing for Christmas this coming year, if if I'm dead and my wife is dead, if someone comes and says to them, but how do you know what to do? I mean, your parents are dead and I don't see anything written down anywhere. <laughs> you know, How do you know? They're going to stare at them blankly, as Martin Luther liked to say, stare at them like a cow staring at a new gate. And they're going to respond, you know, uncomprehendingly. They're going to respond, what are you talking about? Our parents' teaching, their teaching and preaching is present 
in our doctrine. Their example is present in the way we do things, is, is present in our manner of life. And the institutions that they established are present in what you see us doing before your very eyes. And no, it isn't written down anywhere. The only place it's written down is in us. That's how tradition works. It's exactly how it works. And that's why paragraph 80 of the Catechism is this so dead on. This is what it says. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other for both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring, that is the apostolic teaching, the word of God, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal, scripture and tradition. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. There is so much in this paragraph to be unpacked later on. I realize every line, but it's beautifully describing in a nuanced way, scripture and tradition somehow come together, flowing from the same divine source, interact with one another to transmit the word of God. Ken, I don't know if you've ever been part of a church plant. I've never been part of a church plant proper. I was part of a a house church Mm -hmm. that I kind of didn't, well, it became sort of a house church. I thought it was more of like a Bible study when it got started. But even within yeah. that, it took us about a month to sort of establish like a routine and sort of traditions within that. Yeah. Right. If you were to start up a storefront Baptist, you know, splinter church mm-hmm. that you were the head of and didn't answer to any denominational councils or whatever, within weeks, months, you would have a set of traditions. Even if you said, Mm-hmm. that your sole rule of faith was the yeah. Bible. You would yeah, have your you would. own set of traditions yeah. and routines and rituals, and you would have your own magisterium. It would be you, the preacher, interpreting the scriptures for the people in the room. Yeah, it would begin to evolve right away. In fact, I heard something funny just a couple of weeks ago. Someone was talking, talking about a church plant, and they said, what did the guy say What did the guy say at the second meeting of a church planting committee? What's that? That's not how we did it last week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's how it went. But I was involved in a church plant one time of providing worship music, playing my guitar and leading the singing. That was essentially my role but, too, by the way. Okay, but but you're right. Okay, we need to wrap this up. We've been going a long time. Okay, we, we understand a bit now of the Catholic teaching as to what tradition is and where it is to be found. It's the substance of the apostles' teaching communicated in ways other than writing is to be found in the church's doctrine, life, and worship. But I can hear my Protestant friend cutting it at this point and saying, okay, but how do you know this tradition has been preserved correctly, accurately? I mean, we have the written tradition in Scripture, and don't go there, Matt. I thought you were setting me up to ask the question. I can read your mind. Okay. We have the written tradition in Scripture, my Protestant friend would say. Which is obviously without error, right? Yeah, and we can trust that. But how do we know that this tradition that you speak of wasn't bent all out of shape within decades of the apostles' deaths? And what I want to do here is simply give the church's answer, which we're going to have to come back later on to defend and to uh, expound, okay? It's in paragraphs 77 and 78 of the Catechism. Here's the answer to that question that the church gives. In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, 
the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. This living transmission through the bishops, the succession of the bishops, is accomplished in the Holy Spirit. Now, okay, I'm fully aware, I'm thinking of those who are watching this, maybe Protestants, evangelicals, Protestant ministers maybe, I'm fully aware. These are mere assertions at this point, all right? And we understand that. We got, we got are, to take episodes to prove these. Yeah, these are the assertions. We'll be making biblical, the biblical, the historical case for the truth of these over the coming weeks. But for now, this is the essence of the church's answer to the question, but how do we know? But how do we know the transmission wasn't all distorted, thrown out of whack, bent out of shape, deformed? How do we know? Here's the answer. Individual Christians may drift from the apostolic faith on any particular issue, and they will. Individual priests may drift, and they will. Individual bishops may drift, and they certainly will over time. But the Holy Spirit, through the successors to the apostles, in general, speaking through the, I mean, the Holy Spirit through the successors to the apostles will keep the ship on its path. This is the church's essential teaching. And I want to conclude by asking a question, and I throw it out almost rhetorically, but what really is the alternative to this point of view? I, I, those listening, just to ponder this, what's the alternative? Each Christian reading the Bible and studying church history and praying for the leading of the Holy Spirit and deciding for himself or herself? Each Christian community studying, reading, praying, and deciding for itself? I mean, it's only been 500 years, Matt, since the Reformation, where sola scriptura and the right of private judgment was put down as a foundational plank of Protestantism, and there are already thousands and thousands of Protestant denominations, sects, independent movements, contradicting one another in their teaching, presenting all sorts of Christianities to the world. And so the question I ask is, I mean, how, how many do you imagine would exist? That is, how many denominations, how many forms, how many permutations would exist if these Protestant principles of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment had been practiced from the beginning for 2,000 years? Yeah. And so again, I, what's the alternative? What is the alternative to the answer that the Catechism gives? Well, I am going to go there just a little bit, Ken, <laughs> because I can't resist, you know. Go and ahead. I've asked, I, I, I just want go to ahead. throw this out because I asked the same question and was basically tripped up by my own logic in trying to answer it. You know, you said I can hear my Protestant friend cutting in and saying, "Well, how do we know this tradition has been preserved without error?" You can the the Catechism paragraph seventy seven and seventy eight, which you just read, mm -hmm. answer that question. How about this though? How do we know that the the Bible has itself been preserved without error? It's the same answer, Ken. Because in in order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them teaching authority. It's expressed in a special way in these inspired books. It's to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. That's the same answer. And I didn't... That it was the bishops by the Holy Spirit. That's that how we know end, we can trust the Bible. That in the end uh, decided which books 
We can trust the Bible because we can trust the tradition. And again, right. that's not a question that I ever asked, probably till I was in my early 20s. That's uh, all right. And, it, but, and it's all right that you went there. It's a, it's a hint at things. It's, to, a, it's a tease of some stuff hint. that's going to be coming up. Yeah. So, but, uh, so, um, you know, with that, we just need to break off because we've gone too long and we will pick up next week. Sounds good to me. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, come visit us at uh, our online community, community.chnetwork.org, as well as at chnetwork.org on its own. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time around. Yes, you will, unless I'm dead, in which case you'll have to figure out how to do Christmas on your own. I can't have this episode by myself. Okay, bye. Bye.